This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me on the line from Santa Fe, New Mexico, is Johnny D. Boggs, noted Western author, native son of South Carolina. We're going to be talking about his 63rd book. You heard me, 63rd book. The Cobbler of Spanish Fort and Other Frontier Stories. So, Johnny, welcome back to the journal. It's always great to be back at the journal and, and, well, and in my home state, sort of. Well, growing up in Timmonsville, that kind of it does make you home a homeboy, doesn't it? I, I think so. I think so. All right. Let, let's talk a little bit about you because your career, I, I think, has been fascinating. And we'll get into that later. But how you got from a kid in Timmonsville, South Carolina, to one of the country's best-known Western writers is is really a saga unto itself. Let's start about what you did as a kid. I was always fascinated with the the West. Most of that's from TV, of course, and 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 movies. Although the movies were kind of dying out, and so was television. But I'd always been fascinated with that, and I just stuck with it. All right. So you so you grew up in the late 70s, early 80s. Was Gunsmoke still on then? Gunsmoke was on to, I think its last season was 75, and, and, and that was kind of a Monday night ritual at, at our house during the, the last season, at least. You know, Daddy would come home, and he'd sit down and turn on CBS, and I'd sit down next to him and, and watch James Arness and Miss Kitty and, and all those good people. And, and, and I look back on it now, and, and I've gone back and even watched some of the earlier episodes um, before I was born. And the series really holds up. I think it's probably the best Western series that, that ever aired on, on television. Oh. And, and 2001, I had the opportunity to interview James Arness. He had written an autobiography, and uh, he called me up on the phone, and, and we chatted. And that was, that was kind of a, one of the highlights of my freelance magazine writing career. Well, I, I was going to say, and we can get into that later. I, I, I don't know how you produce as much as you do. But you started writing stories when you were in junior high, and you were selling them to your fellow students. I found that fascinating. Well, actually, it was even earlier than that. It was, uh, it was you know, grammar school. But my third grade teacher, uh, Miss Maynard, when we got into the English portion of, of the class, she said one day it was like, write a tale, just, you know, write a story, make something up. And I have no idea what I wrote, but I just remember the feeling I got when I was doing that. And I said, hey, this is this is a pretty cool gig. People actually do this. Uh, and then I started writing stories. I'd, I'd write uh, pieces for uh, friends. And they'd say, hey, can you write me a, a swashbuckler, a, a mystery, a science fiction, a horror, a detective story, something like that. I'd, I'd write them a story and just sell it to them for a nickel or a dime. <laughs> And eventually, I just started um, moving back to the Westerns um, and uh, started reading a lot and, uh, you know, fiction and then some nonfiction and uh, discovered that the actual Western history is a whole lot more fascinating and, and, and realistic and, and sometimes quite unpleasant, uh, often quite unpleasant um, than what you saw on Gunsmoke or uh, The Virginian or um, Bonanza, which I never really liked. <laughs> Looking back at that time in the movies, particularly, and I'm a fair bit older than you, they were they were really corny. White hats, dark hats, somebody's going to be robbed, somebody might get hanged. They fight and nobody loses a hat in the fight. Somebody goes through the window <laughs> in the bar, the saloon, excuse me. Of course, on Gunsmoke, you do have the saloon, and Miss Kitty is, Bret Hart would have described her as maybe the harpy with a heart of gold. <laughs> maybe. Uh, maybe. You know, in, in some, of the early, some of the early episodes, I was watching them one other night, they're in the Long Branch, and you see cowboys walking up and down the stairs with uh, a saloon girl who's not Miss Kitty. And, you know, that, in 1956, 57, that's, that's pretty risque for uh, CBS television. Well, actually, it is. Because people say, I know what these people are doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you were a young kid. You did know what people would do. What... <laughs> no, no, 
thought, well, they're just going upstairs. I think. <laughs> And not only that, they, they, you know, when they pull, when they, you know, took a shot at the bar, they were drinking pretty heavy. Uh, so, did you work on your high school newspaper? I did. I did. I was uh, like sports editor. My at least I was sports editor my senior. Now, the high school newspaper is kind of a misnomer. Uh, you know, it was mimeographed, and, and I actually did some film reviews for it too. So now, wh- where are you? Uh, so where... it's kind of you know spreading. I went to school at uh, Hudgens Academy in, in Lynchburg and graduated in 1980 and then went to the University of South Carolina and right. majored in journalism. That, that's why I, I knew you majored in journalism at Carolina, and I figured you had to have been on your high school paper, and that would have, would have, been, the, would have been the stepping stone. But What happened was I was, I was um, you know, I, by that point, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer. And I wanted to write stories, and and primarily I wanted to write Western stories. And I was somehow smart enough to realize that, yeah, I don't think you just go out and write a book and sell it and and make a living. I think you probably have to, you know, work your way up to that. At the time, I I couldn't even imagine myself writing a book. I just wanted to write short stories. But I played high school football, and I was kind of a team manager for the baseball team. Now, baseball was always my favorite sport. I just wasn't good enough to, to ever make a team. And part of my job was to call in the newspapers and give them the results of the game and, you know, who had so-and-so hits, who scored the touchdown or whatever, and report to that. So I, I developed a contact with the sports departments at the Florence Morning News, which was a local paper, and the Sumter Daily Item, which uh, covered the county that um, – that the high school was in. So I started developing that. And I met some of the sports writers when they would come to cover games. And I said, hey, maybe this is what I need to do. Maybe I need to be a journalist and kind of figure that out and, and draw a paycheck, a uh, paycheck loosely defined. Uh, and um, and that's what made got me interested in, in becoming a sports writer. And it, that kind of worked out, too. In those days, Carolina had a great English department, you know, James Dickey and, and all sorts of other writers. Yeah. Do you take any courses over right. there in the English? I never could get into Dickey's class. I, another thing was they had a, uh, a advanced history class on uh, the Western frontier, and I never could get in. That's kind of bizarre because I, I tried every, every semester. I tried to get in that class, and I never could, even as an upperclassman. The one time I finally could get in that class. I couldn't take it because it conflicted with something I needed for journalism to get my degree in journalism. So, so no luck, uh, no luck there. No luck with uh, James Dickey or uh, William Price Fox and, and some of those other great teachers. But I had really good English teachers. And the journalism school at South Carolina was, uh, was a, it had a very high, high regard, especially in the, in the Southeast. All right, so you get your journalism degree, but Carolina had a literary magazine, Portfolio. You worked with that. You didn't work with the Gamecock, did you? Uh, no, I, I was actually editor-in-chief the Gamecock my senior year, and oh. I worked through it pretty much my sophomore to, um, to my senior year. So I was working at the school newspaper. It was tri-weekly then, um, and, and, you know, going to the journalism classes, I mean— now, phenomenal professors uh, there, and um, I was freelancing um, what we called stringing at the time. I was covering events, uh, sporting events mostly. Who you were stringing? What I, were you... I, I strung for the Sumter Daily Item, and I strung for the uh, Florence Morning News, the, like I said, the two local papers. I think I occasionally did something. Uh, the state in Columbia had asked me to do something, but... I'd asked them what they wanted me to do. I was basically just taking dictation over the phone. And I thought, you know, what I was doing at Sumter in Florence, I was at least getting a byline. And I thought that was a little more helpful for, for me who wanted to get a job at a newspaper in the western part of the United States. You're, you're editor of the Gamecock. You're doing stringing for sports information for the Florence and Sumter newspapers, but you're also, as I say, doing serious writing, no offense to my journalism friends, serious writing for Portfolio, and uh, you had publications a couple of years in Portfolio, short stories. I I did. Short stories, two Western Western short stories, in fact, uh, loosely defined. Uh, One of them I I actually still like. (laughs) Well, 
You know, I'm curious, your interest in the West growing up in the South, the Civil War doesn't doesn't loom much in any of your fiction. The American Revolution does, and the Carolina frontier. And by the way, has you gotten to take that course on westward expansion of America? It actually you, earlier was called the American frontier. It started and moved west to 1890. That was that was the course. For many years, Dr. Robert Oakes, chairman of the department, taught it. He had retired by the time okay. you were doing it, but it was continued. But growing up, you read books that I didn't think kids in the 1970s and 80s were still reading books by Jack London, for example. I mean, I read Jack sure. London. Your mother must have or daddy assembled a good library for you to sample. They 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 were avid readers. Avid readers. I mean, they, they always, my dad always had a book in his hand, and my mom liked to read too. And we had a big collection of uh, Reader's Digest condensed books, and there were some other books. And there was a, you know, it was easy to find a book in the house. And I just, uh, at the time, you could also find a number of book bookstores, um, several bookstores. Uh, and so I'd go to bookstores. I'd just buy books. I mean, my senior year, my, or even as early as probably my, well, all through school, basically, I'd, I'd have a book in my hand. I was always reading. I was reading different things, studying actually the genre. I didn't realize at the time, but I was studying how, you know, Jack London formed a sentence, Mark Twain formed a sentence, uh, Charles Dickens formed a sentence. And, 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 Getting into the characters and see how they developed characters. I'm just reading, 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 and then you know, people ask me, "How do you write?" I say, "You read, <laughs> you read, and you study, and you and you learn the craft, and you learn how people did it, and what works for you, and and what doesn't work for you." I mean, I'd go through books and I said, "Well, this this is a decent sentence, but you know, I think I would do do it this way or that way, or or this sentence really doesn't make sense. This sentence is too long." <laughs> William Faulkner. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you mentioned bookstores, and when you were at Carolina in the 1980s, there were at least two or three good independent bookstores in in the city. Um, not not true today. No, that's that's a shame too. Um, yeah, there were there were plenty of good bookstores all over. I mean, you could find them anywhere. And then you know, used bookstores were starting to pop up by the time I was in, in high school. So, and that's where I discovered a lot of, a lot of books, uh, a lot of Western books uh, from authors I had never heard of. In fact, uh, because at the time, I mean, the Western books in the 1980s, it was pretty much dominated by Louis L'Amour and nobody else, um, at least in South Carolina. Now, when I moved to Texas, I realized that there were uh, bookstores there carried other Western writers and I could, I could read and learn from them. The biggest point for me, I think, was my freshman year in South Carolina, um, Capitol Newsstand was right across from the Wade Hampton Hotel, which was my dorm on Main Street right across from the Capitol. And um, there was also a bar right next to the Capitol Newsstand my freshman year. Was, I spent the drinking age then was 18, by the way, for beer and wine. So um, they had a special um Buy one picture, get, show your student ID, get your second picture free, which I said that really res, uh, promotes responsible drinking for college freshmen uh, at South Carolina. But right next to it was a Capitol newsstand. And I'd go over there and you know they had newspapers and I would pick up newspapers to see how other newspapers were doing um, covering events. Um, Philadelphia Inquirer, Washington Post, uh, local Charlotte Observer and places like that. But they had books, too. And one day I picked up a book called uh, The Hanging Tree and Other Stories by Dorothy M. Johnson, who was a Montana writer, a former journalist. Um, she's probably best known for her, her novellas, The Hanging Tree, um, A Man Called Horse, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which was all turned into movies. And I read her short stories and they were so different and so real and so you know literary i said well this is what i really wanted to be doing this is i don't want to be louis l'amour i want to be dorothy m johnson well you know it's interesting short stories are the at least according to people who study uh, literature the hardest thing to write it's easier to write a novel or a novel, but a short story is uh, the hardest to write. And yet, that's what you zeroed in on at very first. You didn't think about writing a novel. 
Although you have written, no, I, 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 I said I, I people would ask when you're going to write a novel. I said I don't, I can't keep a train of thought long enough to write a novel. And then once I started writing novels, uh, the only time, you know, honestly, the only time I will write a short story now is when somebody calls me. Usually, usually, uh, if someone calls me up and asks me, uh, "Look, we're doing an anthology. Can you write a short story for this? We're paying this." Because you're right. I mean, it's absolutely. Uh, I was told when I was writing, it's harder to write a short story than a good short story than it is to write a novel. And I said, man, that can't be. But you go back to it and you realize, yes, it is because you, you're doing a limited word count. Every word has to count. You can't get lazy. Um, and you have to be able to hook that reader from the first sentence and keep that reader going to the very final word. Uh, and that is that is <laughs> that is incredibly hard to do. Johnny, we have to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Johnny D. Boggs about his latest book, The Cobbler of Spanish Fort and Other Frontier Stories. Johnny, I want to get into the book, but I've got to get you to Texas, and then, we, then we'll get into your, your book. You graduate from Carolina in 1984, and you headed west. Yeah, I got a job. Um, a professor, um, a copy editor professor, Henry T. Price, uh, called me in the hall. And uh, when I was going to the journalism lab my senior year, and he said, hey, I know you want to move out west and work for a newspaper. Here's a name. Um, I just met him at, a, I think, a convention, a newspaper convention in Atlanta. Uh, write him a letter, send him a resume, tell him I recommended that I contact him. And um, the guy worked for the Dallas Times Herald. And I wrote him a letter. And he had an assistant managing editor call me. At the time, the Dallas Times Herald, it was, it was pure luck. Dallas Times Herald uh, was launching a zoned newspaper program, and they were hiring a bunch of young kids straight out of college to fill these positions. They hired four sports writers, and I was one of them. So that got me to Texas. And that paper lasted till the early 1990s, and then you moved over to Fort Worth. Fort Worth, yeah. The paper, the paper, the paper closed. I just bought my first house. The house was built December 1941 uh, was when the house was built. Or it was built in 1941. I moved in on December 7th. I said, you know, I wonder what's going to, if this is a bad omen. On December 8th, I got the phone call from a friend of the Dallas Morning News saying, we just bought your paper and we're shutting you down. <laughs> Which was a forerunner of what was about to come in the newspaper industry. But um, but then I got a job at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, worked my way up to the assistant sports editor in charge of the night operation of the newspaper, which is what I was at Dallas when it closed. And um, and by, the, by, by then, by the, when I was at Fort Worth, I started getting a couple of novels published. They weren't big novels. Uh, they didn't pay a whole lot, didn't sell a whole lot, but um, it was a way to learn the craft. And um, I was also freelancing at the side on the side for some magazine articles, Boys Life, um, True West, uh, other magazines. And um, at 1998, I just came home one night and I said, you know, maybe it's time I just really try to see if I can make a living doing this. So uh, we moved to Santa Fe, sold the house, moved to Santa Fe, and um, that was 1998, and I've been doing this ever since. So I'm still trying to figure out how it works, but uh, but so far it's it's been okay. <laughs> well, as I said, I counted 62 books, which would include collections of short stories, and this is your 63rd. Mm -hmm. So let's do talk about this this collection. Uh, it's an it's. Not a lot of new ones written just for the book because you include some of your favorites. And I, I want to hone in on the one that I think you consider your own personal uh, favorite. And that is the one about Chester Drawers. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's one of the reasons I um, I was surprised when I pitched the um, pitched the idea to the editor at Five Star Books. I, I, they had done some anthologies, but they were the anthology, short story anthologies were always by multiple authors, and that's that's what sells the best, um, unless you're a, a big name, and I don't consider myself a big name. But I wanted to do this, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this was I wanted to figure out a way where I could get 
um, Massacre at Chester Drawers Mountain in an anthology because when I was doing library programs or book signings, sometimes they'd ask me to read a short story uh, because it's shorter than reading a chapter of a novel and it's you get the full story. And I often read this one for one reason, it's it's short. It's a really short story. What happened was, I guess it was about 2000, I'd done a novel called Ten and Me that was a Spur Award finalist. And the newspaper and Raleigh, North Carolina was at the time, the book section, they were doing excerpts of novels from Southern writers and uh, or short stories, and they asked me if I could do something for them. So I did Massacre of Chester Drawers Mountain, which is about a young boy growing up in the 1960s who has a brother who's uh, serving an army in Vietnam, and he plays you know, basically cowboys and Indians with his mother's hair curlers. Uh, and that's what he's doing when a hurricane is whipping through the South and spawns a tornado, which um, leads to a, a surreal sort of a ending where he sees his brother. And Mama told me that she always thought a tornado had touched down right beside our house when I was a, very young. And she says she thought I must have seen it. It didn't do any damage to the house. I think maybe blew up some shingles, but it uprooted a tree, and that was it. So that's I pulled from that. And when I was a kid, I would take Mama's hair curlers and use the bobby pins as um, cavalry sabers or uh, spears or whatnot, and 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 play with them. And uh, I had a cousin, First Lieutenant Terry Graham, who was killed in action in 1969. So I just combined all of that into a story. And, and every time I read that story at a, um, at a library, and, and granted, a lot of the people were much older than me, and a lot of them uh, grew up in Vietnam. Some of them even served in Vietnam. Uh, one uh, a librarian lost her husband in Vietnam, and it always rang, struck, struck a chord. And I just said, I really want to get Because when I set this collection in, the first editor who read it said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we publish Western stories. You've got some Southern stories that are set in contemporary times. I'm not sure they're going to go for this. And I said, well, I understand that, but you'll, you'll make me very happy if you will include some of the Southern stories because, you know, things can get quite Western in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Well, and they they went for it, and I was I was surprised. No, no, you, so, you you literally you, one of your first cousin was killed in Vietnam very early, right? Yes, right, right. Um, and the family, I mean, his his uh, mother, his his siblings, they all gathered. He was he's buried at the National Cemetery in in, um, in Florence, which is where my dad's buried, and um, they all gathered at the house. And you know, you're six years old. Um, Seven actually, he was, he was killed in '69. Uh, I just moved. I just moved it to '68 because I remembered. Also, I remember when 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 uh, Bobby Kennedy was killed. I remember my dad came in and I was talking about that. And um, I just you know just you know what you do and when you're writing fiction, you just mine everything. And I said you know um, when I'm when I'm speak, speaking at a writers conferences, I said you know you want to write about it's easy to create characters, but it's easier to create characters that you actually know. So what I said I usually do is, is I take people I've met, most of them in the South, and I move them out west when I'm writing Western stories. Um, so so they're, they're real to me, and if I make them real, if they're real to me, I can try to make them real on the paper. Well, as I think I mentioned earlier, you do have at least three novels that I am personally familiar with that you set on the South Car <laughs> on the South Carolina frontier. Um, how did your usual readers or your editors react to the fact that you did those three Southern frontier novels? When when I signed on when I signed with my agent, um, gosh, nineteen ninety nine, he was mostly selling to our five star, which is a library, mostly a library hardcover market. Um, and I asked, and reason one one reason I'd, I'd seen one of his stories, and it was a frontier story. Uh, one of the books he had published was was on the early frontier. I think it was in the north, 
north northeast kind of um you know james fenmore cooper country but i asked him i said well can i write something said in the uh, 1700s carolina frontier and he goes yes you can um don't do it very often <laughs> but yes you can there's a frontier stories the west is, does not begin west of the mississippi river the west begins when the first european settlers landed on the eastern coast so i did i think the first one i did was the spoilers uh, which was about it was basically a Francis Marion story about a that kind of guerrilla warfare, and then I wanted to do one on Kings, the Battle of Kings Mountain, and the Overmountain Man, and and what was going on between you know the Tories and and the Patriots and all that, and how how it really was a forerunner of the Civil War. I mean, it's brother against brothers, neighbor against neighbor. Uh, you just have you know different sides, and it's not necessarily one side's right or wrong. It's just what what you actually believe. And I wanted to capture that. So that was um, Ghost Legion. And then I did, I wanted to go even back even farther. It was one line in um, a book on 96. Gosh, you were bass? Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. Outlaws were plaguing the settlements in, in the 96th district of South Carolina in the 1750s. And it got so bad, and they couldn't get any help from um, government that they formed their own militia and uh, wiped out the outlaw gang. And then the militia got so out of hand they had to form a new militia to get rid of the first militia. So I wrote the Cane Creek Regulators about what was going on in the 1750s in the Carolina frontier. Yes. For for historical purposes, the first group was called the Regulators. second group was called the Moderators. So... The, my, the, the moderators took on the regulators, so and then and then they then they then they made truce uh, at Congaree Creek, right out here near Columbia, and uh, but they they had gotten rid of the of the outlaws. People still today don't think of South Carolina as as being frontier, but in the 1750s and 60s, it was pretty wild and 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 woolly. Oh, definitely. You know, explaining things to kids how sophisticated in classes how sophisticated it was. You've got the Great Wagon Road that runs from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, all the way down to Abbeville, South Carolina, Abbeville mm-hmm. County, present day Abbeville County. And so, horse thieves would would steal in Abbeville or York or Lancaster, and then run them back up the. Great Wagon Road, sell them in Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley or even further north. I'd say, if somebody steals your car in Columbia right now, what's going to happen? They say, it's going to go up 95 to a chop shop and then it's going to disappear. I said, that's what they were doing in the 18th century. But the folks who, who went after them, they didn't play by the Marquis of Queensbury rules. And you see that out west. I mean, I mean it, it all moves moves westward. Uh, the vigilanteism and, and everything else. An interesting history this country has, and it's not always pleasant. Johnny, you've won numerous awards. Uh, for those of us who like detective fiction, to win an Edgar is a really big deal. But to win a, a spur in Western writing, I would say it's the equivalent award. And... Over the years, your short stories have won awards. I didn't know you wrote children's fiction. Young adult, young adult. Young adult. It's been, an, for a kid from Timminsville, South Carolina, it's been an incredible story. Yeah, there, there are nine Spur Awards. You know, what, I, I won the first one for a short story, A Piano at Dead Man's Crossing. I said, well, well this is pretty neat. It's not going to get any better than this. And then, you know, I've won some more. And... Um, no writer uh, in the history of Western writers of America has had won more than you know seven, and I have nine now. And it's now I, I will say one thing. I mean, there are a lot more awards given for various categories than there were when the organization started presenting awards in the 1950s. So that's one thing. But you know, you know, it means that you know somebody actually likes your books and they think you're doing a good job. And, well, and and I, I try to do a good job. Well, and for those who people who don't understand Western fiction, the fact that you won an Owen Wister Award that should get anybody's attention who knows serious literature. 
yeah, that was that was, they, they they called me up um, in um, I think 2019 and said they were giving me the uh, Owen Wester Award for lifetime achievement, lifetime contributions to Western literature, and which includes an induction into the Western Writers Hall of Fame and uh, at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in um, uh, Cody, Wyoming. And the uh, first thing I said was, I can think of a dozen people more deserving uh, of that award than me. And the uh, Chris Entz, who was um, vice president of Western Rush of America at the time, said, well, and if you were on the committee, um, you could have raised those um, names up. But as you weren't on the committee, you've been chosen and, and you're getting it. And of course, uh, now I, I told them, uh, well, you see what happens when you give me the Owen Wister Award. The whole world goes to pieces. Um, <laughs> well, but uh, it is uh, it's a it's yeah. I'm I'm still kind of stunned at that, but but I'm not, I'm not going to give it back. <laughs> well, you also are a very good photographer, not just not just a writer. Um, and if you pull up your page, there's actually a photograph that says "Playtime." Fourth of July, Columbia, South Carolina. Are those your? Kids? I was in college when I took that. Photo. You were? No, I don't know. I, I, I don't. I can't remember who those kids were. I was in. I was in college. I was taking photojournalism class in college, and I was at the Fourth of July party. Uh, um, uh, just someone had invited me, so I just took the camera. I was. I always had a camera with me since I was uh, in high school. I, I was always snapping photos, and I just took it there and and. Can't remember if we tried to run that into Gamecock or not, but I just loved the photo. It was you know two kids playing on the Fourth of July on the on the sandy uh, shores of a lake, and uh, and I still I still like to take photos. That leads me to raise a question. You grew up in very green country, and now you're living <laughs> with the rocks and the canyons and the arroyas and cacti and. And what have you? Um, that that's got to be a real culture issue. Culture you know, shock. When I was working, out to, yeah, yeah, no, it, it it took a little. Uh, well, you know, you go to Dallas, and then you're from South Carolina, and yeah, I'm, I'm going from a town, and I don't even live in the town. I'm going from a town about two thousand people to a city of a million. That that was a little bit of a culture shock. And then when I moved to New Mexico, I, I, from a city of a million to a a uh, community of about uh, 8,000 people outside of Santa Fe. Santa Fe is probably 60,000, 70,000, and the county is probably 120,000. But you go from this to the Rocky Mountains, the Southern Rockies, uh, that, that's a little bit of a definitely a, a culture shock. The one thing I, I noticed, though, when I was working in Dallas, we had a, I, was, I was on the copy desk at the Dallas Times-Herald, and we had a sports writer cover an event. At the, it wasn't a football game or anything like that. I can't remember what the event was, but she was at Chapel Hill covering a uh, event at the at the University of North Carolina. And I happened to be editing her story, and she called in and uh, for questions. And so they transferred me over to her, and I said, "Hey, what do you think of Chapel Hill?" And she goes, I, I can't stand it. She's a native Texan. I can't stand it. I go, what do you mean? Now, Chapel Hill University of North Carolina is one of the prettiest campuses that I've ever seen. She goes, no, it's the trees. I said, yeah, yeah, they're, they're tall pine trees. Yeah. So I can't see anything. It's like I'm in a tunnel. I'm claustrophobic. I got to get out of here. And I said, you're crazy. Now, now I've been out west since, you know, uh, 1984. So, you know. All those years later, I go back home, and I'm saying, "Oh, these pine trees!" And about you know a day later, I'm, just, I'm scratching my legs. I can't see anything. I'm just that's like I'm in a tunnel. Well, I must be losing my mind. Well, one of my fellow graduate students, he, he and his wife were from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and his job was teaching at New Mexico State University. And she said, she said, you can go there as long as you bring me back east every year so that I can see real trees. And uh, <laughs> it started off being uh, western Louisiana and then... Gradually, she got acclimated, but she said, I am not going out there unless you promise to bring me back east. Uh, Moss draped oaks is, <laughs> was her preference. So anyway, but there is a beauty in it. You don't have to mow your grass 
you know. <laughs> That's true. That's true. The lawnmower uh, was sold in in, in, in Dallas, Texas. Uh, yeah, there's there's not a whole lot of grass to uh, to mow. There's um, and you get used to the food. I mean, the Mexico green chili or red chili and. Uh, and it's beautiful. I mean, the sunsets here are absolutely gorgeous. You never take them for granted, but they're they're beautiful. We have four seasons, but uh, yeah, it's it's totally beautiful. I do miss I, I do miss vinegar based barbecue, and I, I miss shrimp and grits and she crab soup. But <laughs> you can't get those in New Mexico. You can find restaurants that serve uh, shrimp and grits, but. They don't know how to do shrimp and grits here. I'm finding the further you travel away from South Carolina, you'll frequently see it advertised as Charleston shrimp and grits or South Carolina shrimp and grits. <laughs> to give it real cachet, just to say shrimp and grits doesn't make it. No, Santa no. Fe, you know Santa Fe is quite a you know the, the arts community around Santa Fe. Yeah, that's one thing. Uh, um, great thing about Santa Fe is is you got a mix of cultures. You know, it's a third um, a Native American, it's a third Hispanic, and it's a third white and other. Uh, and another thing I really love about Santa Fe is that it's it's really accepting, and and really accepts an art town. It's a huge art town, and as I always said, you know, writers are the lowest form of artists and the lowest form of celebrity, but they treat you like an artist here. I, I've never met a boring person in, in Santa Fe. There's always an interesting story about how they got here, uh, what they do, um, and most people live here because they want to live here. Um, there's not a whole lot of, of uh, industry other than um, tourism and government, although the film industry is picking up a lot, and there's a lot of jobs to be had doing that. Well, uh, But it's a beautiful place. You know, come visit. Well, actually, I, I, I have been there. I wish I'd known you were there. I would, I would, <laughs> have, dropped, would have dropped by. I mean, hey, you know, you, you said y'all come. I would have done it. Uh, <laughs> I would have said that. <laughs> uh, you, you talked a lot about in the past about movies. Have you ever done any screenwriting? No, you know, people ask me all the time, and I said, you know, it's not what I do. I mean, I've got friends who are who are screenwriters, some quite successful. I mean, um, Kirk Ellis, who uh, won an Emmy for um, adapting uh, David McCullough's John Adams. To, for HBO. Um, he's part of our, uh, we have a, a movie group here, Western Movie Night. We do it once a month where we watch a Western movie and, and talk about it. And Kirk Ellis is one of those uh, successful screenwriter. Uh, David Morrell, who's a, a novelist, best known for uh, creating the character of Rambo. Uh, he's in the group. Um, like I said, you, you never meet a boring person, so, so uh, are, and, a, and a, a few others. So, but yeah, I'm, but screenplay is just something I don't do, and that's what I tell people. I said, you know, I'm 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 confident enough that if I write a book, it's going to get published, or a magazine article, it's going to get published. But a screen a screenplay, the chances of getting that actually uh, put on film is is maybe one in a million. I mean, it's just really really hard to do. And it's not what I do. I mean, I, I write. Okay, you, you, you I, I know. I know what I'm good at. <laughs> Johnny, we're going to let our folks know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking to Johnny D. Boggs about his latest book, "The Cobbler of Spanish Fort and Other Frontier Stories," and his fascinating career from Timmonsville boy to award-winning Western author. All right, you got this group of folks who get together once a month and watch a, and watch a Western mm-hmm. movie. They don't many really make Westerns now. Are you watching old movies or? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, most. I mean, you do see some some Westerns coming back now. Uh, um, News of the World, which I thought was a phenomenal book by Paul Ed Giles. I didn't care that much for Tom Hanks' movie version, but but we are seeing more Westerns being made. Just you now, not as much as as uh, they were in the past. So mostly what we do are old movies. I, I've been bringing silent movies. I brought one, uh, Daughter of the Dawn, uh, and it was filmed in the early 1900s, silent movie, uh, with an all-Native cast. There's not a white person in the movie. It's about, it's, it's, it was filmed in Oklahoma on the Comanche-Kiowa uh, uh, reservation, and they had Comanches and Kiowas. Uh, and it was just a, a, a strange but but wonderful movie and uh 
And then the, we bring a lot of bees. Um, I think we probably bought more uh, Randolph Scott movies than we have John Wayne movies. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> well, that's okay. I think uh, some of the Randolph Scott movies are better than some of the John Wayne movies. Uh, well, so we do. We, we uh, One person curates. There are six of us. One person curates uh, every month. And that means you bring a, a movie. Then we uh, have dinner cocktails, watch the movie, discuss the movie, catch up on everything, talk about writing process, what we're doing and stuff like that. And it's, it's been, we've been doing it for gosh, years. Uh, and we haven't run out of Westerns yet. <laughs> well, I like, so like a, plenty to, to uh, you know, pull back on, pull up, hop along Cassidy, all, <laughs> you know, all those folks that, uh, like I say, every Saturday, half of the double header at the local Roxy was a Western. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I uh, just finished a, a nonfiction book. I plug this; it comes out later this year, I believe. It's called "American Newspaper Journalist on Film," and it's a look at uh, how newspaper um, reporters and editors and photographers were played on film during the sound era. So I start with um, the 19, late nineteen twenties and go all the way up to uh, you know probably last year. Uh, and when I when I pitched the idea, I said, you know, I want to write something. I've written a couple of books about film, but most of it had been about Western film, Billy the Kid movies, Jesse James movies, um, things like that. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to go back and do newspaper movies for one reason. There are a lot more really good newspaper movies than there are good movies about Jesse James or Billy the Kid. So I wanted to watch some some good. But I didn't realize there must be thousands of movies about newspaper journalists and, and but they they peak they started peaking in the 1930s basically um just like the westerns kind of peaked in 1939 and then they died out about the 1960s because television for one reason and then just because i think everything had been said and you can also see that trend in, in newspapers in the 1930s 40s and 50s there were tons of movies about newspapers and newspaper journalists well but by 1960 when television starts picking up you see the movies about newspapers declining yeah well uh in the 1950s uh the one of the serials that was on every afternoon was front page farrell you know, 15-minute serial, serial along with Sky King and whatever on radio. Mm -hmm. That that didn't translate to television. The, the closest thing to the newsroom was, of course, Superman. And the, they, <laughs> <laughs> he and Lois Lane worked for the Globe, right? I think, I think that uh, was their— Daily Planet. Daily, Daily Planet. Planet, yeah. So, Daily Planet, yeah. Uh, well, well, there were— there were, there were um, there were, Superman made it into the book because I did a chapter on serials, uh, and there were two serials, I think 1948 and 1950, starring Superman as Clark Kent, who actually worked as a journalist. I mean, I mean the Green Hornet was a newspaper publisher, and, and the serials about the Green Hornet, you never even saw the newspaper. <laughs> but in Superman, you actually saw them trying to do some sort of reporting. All right, you mentioned it in your, in your, your monthly group. You are working on. You talk about what y'all are doing. What are you? What is Johnny D. Boggs doing now? What, what's your next next project? Oh, I just finished. Uh, I did a a novel years ago. I did a novel called Kill Straight, which was kind of a period mystery about a Comanche Indian who um, is shipped off to uh, Indian school and comes back to the reservation in the 1880s. And the only job he can get is as a tribal policeman. So basically it's a, a period mystery. And when I finished the book, I wasn't exactly sure how that was gonna go over, but my agent said, this is gonna be a series, right? And I said, oh, oh okay, I guess. So I, I wrote three other books on, on about this Comanche, who's given the name Daniel Killstrake. Um, and he solves basically murders in the West. And I decided I, I hadn't done one in the years. And, I, and people kept asking me when I was going to do another one. And I said, well, I'll do one more. So I, I did one called Kill Straight Returns. Uh, and I just sent it off to the publisher. Uh, and the editor liked it. So 
we'll see. And I, I decided I'm going to end the series this way and give it a, a decent, give the guy a happy ending. He's had me, he's been through enough crap already. So let's, let's let him end on a happy note. And uh, one complaint I have a friend of mine has, has told me, he says, you know, in your novels, the one thing that you, you tend to do is rarely does the hero get the girl. <laughs> <laughs> so it says, you know, and, and sometimes that just really ticks me off. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll let Daniel Killstreet get the girl at the end of this one so he can live happily ever after. <laughs> no, just spoiler alert, I guess. And then uh, the, the newspaper uh, movie book should come out um, sometime this year. And, and just for a, a side note, um, I, I have just become a, a published songwriter, a recorded songwriter. Uh, I can't play guitar. I can't carry a note, uh, anything like that. But Elmer Kelton had written a, um, a novel years ago. Uh, Elmer Kelton's one of the great um, Western writers of the, of the 20th century. Uh, and he wrote a novel called, uh, called The Time It Never Rained. And it's about the 1950s drought in West Texas. He had been a newspaper reporter covering the drought at the time in the 1950s. Uh, and he wrote a novel which is widely regarded as one of the best contemporary Western novels of all time. Uh, and I'd read it when I first moved to Dallas. I picked up the copy of the book. And I, re I remember started reading it um, in 1984, maybe 1985. And it just struck with me. And I said, man, I think there's a song here. Um, and I think I wrote the first verse or something like that. And it is like most of the stuff, most of the poems, and then even some novels I've written, I get a paragraph or a few paragraphs into it, and then it dies. And I said, oh, this isn't going anywhere. So it sat there. And then one day I was one at a Western Writers America convention. Elmer was talking about the drought. And his, his wife, who he married in World War II, was from Austria. And she was just, you know, small, still had that trace of the Austrian accent and stuff like that. But she was just talking about what it was like to come from Austria to far west Texas. And she goes, we we're driving we're driving down the road to the ranch house and 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 Elmer says, you know, well, there was nothing but, you know, droughts killing everything, but rabbits breed like you've never seen during a drought. So there are rabbits just running all across the road. And his wife goes, we're driving back to the ranch, and all the, all we hear is poof, 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 as the truck runs over rabbits. <laughs> and that's when it struck me. I said, my goodness, you must really love this guy. <laughs> not have been sent back so take me back to the train so i realized the song's got to be a love song so i wrote a song called loving county which is a county in west texas about a, a rancher and his wife and it was a, i imagined it as a duet and mickey Furman. Um, who's a friend of mine from Nashville, Tennessee, and as a recording, she actually used to headline the Louisiana Hayride in its um, re rebirth in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, and John Chandler, who was a friend of mine, uh, singer-songwriter, uh, great guy in Denver, Colorado, um, they recorded it on Mickey's album, Westbound, which he just released um, so yeah, I won't sing it for you because, like I said, I cannot carry a tune. Should I say thank you? <laughs> Would re repeat the title of your song, Johnny. The song is called "Loving County," uh, and it's on the album called "Westbound" by Mickey M I C K I Furman F U H R M A N. She sings it with John Chandler. Okay, you, you know the drill. Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. And so we're going to have to, to, to do that. Any last words for our listeners before we do? It's always, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Walter, and, and you make me feel right at like I'm, like I'm back in Timmonsville. Uh, and, and all those, those Southern novels I've written, you know, I couldn't have written them without your help because I'd always go back to some of your books to, uh, to read and research. Well, you're, you're kind. 
It's been a, another fun conversation with you, and I hope that uh, you, you come back to South Carolina and uh, don't get grossed out by the trees <laughs> or, we- <laughs> or weirded out by the trees. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway I, well next time next time you get to new mexico you know i, I know all the good coffee shops and all the good hey, places to eat so that sounds good and uh i got barbecue joints i can take you to when you come back to south carolina <laughs> all right i'm there i'm all there okay johnny d boggs the author of the cobbler of spanish fort and other frontier stories native son of south carolina award-winning western author Thank you so much for being with us again on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It has been a pleasure to know Johnny D. Boggs over the years. Johnny's story is, in many ways, an American success story, but it all started here in South Carolina. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.